oh my goodness, do I remember writing this. <laughs> Welcome back to the Women of Marvel podcast, where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. It's Judy Stevens. Hey, it's Sana Amanath. And we have a great interview for you guys today. We are talking to one of the most influential writers and editors and a woman of Marvel, Joe Duffy. Joe joined the staff of Marvel Comics back in the late 1970s, and she's actually worked on a lot of books, including Daredevil, Wolverine, Power Man, and Iron Fest, which she had a very influential run on. Which I never thought would happen, because as a fan, I was crazy about both of those characters. And also Star Wars, so she's a really fun, talented fellow nerd, and has done so many great stories that have impacted the Marvel Universe. And it was really fun talking to her and getting to know a little bit more about her life history, but also how she got into comics, why she loves comics, and she also imparted some really great advice. Who are the characters? That's always the first question. Everything else is secondary. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Joe Duffy. Well, welcome, Joe, to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Let's sort of start at the beginning. How did you first get into comics? Okay, well, I have to credit my older brother, Mal, Maliki. He is two years my senior, and we were small, small children in the 1950s. He went out, because he was old enough to read, and found a comic book and showed it to me, and I looked at it and was like, okay, that's Superman and that's Clark Kent, but then who's that guy? Pointing at the next panel, he said, no, that's Superman, too. I'm like, it can't be Superman. You already told me that's the one up there. He's like, these are like different pages of a book. Oh, wow. So I literally owe knowing how to read comics, seeing my first comic book, and probably my whole taste for action-adventure fiction to my older brother, Mal. Well, that's interesting because you started reading superhero comics almost immediately Before I could read. Basically, yes. My first exposure to comic books was superheroes. That's pretty rare because, like, usually we talk to especially women who got into comics and they say, oh, I, I started reading romance comics and stuff that had more female leads. Like, what was it about superhero comics in particular that, like, you were drawn to? The 1950s, the clothes, the hair, the makeup were beautiful for women. They got great musical numbers, but there was no freaking fun to be had. I wanted to see the adventures of people who were having fun, Mm -hmm. the ones who had the good horses and the great dogs and the clothes they could get dirty. And that was all the boys, all the boy heroes, the male characters, what have you. Mm. I grew up like a little boy to the extent that much as I love kissing now, when I was little, if somebody kissed on screen, I sort of shut and said, (laughs) ick. I didn't want to see that because I, I knew in some way That was going to meddle with the objective of defeating the bad guys, riding the horses, and having fun. (laughs) Well, what about Marvel? Like, what was your first Marvel story? Mal again. We were on vacation in Vermont, a lovely little resort that we went to every summer, and they had a newsstand, and he went to get his regular Superman and Batman and Justice League, and they had Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, like single-digit issues of both. We had never heard of this company or seen this stuff, but dang it all, my brother wanted his comics fix, so he got those, and dang it all, I was a sneaky little sister, so the second he left them unattended, I read them and was like, whoa, these are even better. 
So that was uh, his and therefore my first exposure to Marvel Comics. What was the difference for you between like some of the stuff you were reading and your experience with Spider-Man? You know, at that age, it's hard to articulate, mm. but things were so much harder for Spider-Man. Spider-Man got actual boo-boos. He felt guilty about stuff. He really, really, really never thought he was going to succeed, although he always did. He was constantly worrying about the aged aunt who was constantly worrying about him. And uh, he was a smart aleck. He was such a wise guy. The Village Voice, in a review of early Marvel, said that if Charlie Brown had worn a skin-tight suit and fought crime, he'd be (laughs) Spider-Man. I don't think so. You know, Charlie Brown would have been Peter Parker. Bugs Bunny was (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man. You know, and again, this is somebody I can relate to. It's like, yeah, he's defeating the bad guys. And when he's Peter, he's, oh, how am I going to do it? Oh, my poor aunt. Oh, the bullies are so mean to me. Oh, the girls don't like me. Love that. I love that he was so smart, Mm -hmm. that the spider gave him powers, but he invented the web fluid and the web shooters. Some of the other comic book companies, yeah, they talk about their heroes being scientists or what have you. But you have to be smart to actually write smart people. And the writers at Marvel knew how to write really smart people and make their brains an important part of the superpower. And then it's like, and here's Dr. Doom, and he's just about as smart as Reed is. What are we going to do? So I love that, you know, instead of, why, that's just a bald fat guy, I'll punch him. It was, oh, my gosh, he's smart, but he's bad. But he's smart, but he's good. But he's bad, stronger than, okay, so yeah. you're, you're hearing early comics addiction. You were like the ultimate fangirl in a lot of ways because oh <laughs> we discovered we discovered that you wrote a lot of letters to Marvel Comics back in the day. Absolutely. And I think that's fantastic. And we actually have <laughs> one Uh-oh. of them over here. Oh, I hope and it's, it's not one of it's the really gushy ones. This is awesome. Oh, it's gold. No. Do you oh, remember this? this I have a- no recollection of it's an issue of Giant Size Defenders, number three, published in January of 1975. So we discovered this comic, but then there is this fantastic letter that you wrote. Oh, golly. Do you think you could read it? Sure. Yeah. It's literally gold. I did I'm the crime. Funny. I've got to own it. <laughs> it's at the bottom. Okay. It's the bottom one. And then it goes on to the next page. Yeah. Okay. Dear Marvel, Len, in dashing off these quickie infernos, really did touch on the area that has bothered me for quite some time. The Valkyrie simply has no personality. Oh my goodness, do I remember writing this. (laughs) This is great. I don't buy Doc Strange's reassurances. I don't think his assessment of the cause of this was accurate. Beneath the facade of the warrior woman, there is no one, no one at all. Wrong. There isn't even anyone in the facade. I mean, your so-called warrior woman is as dull as dishwater. She's supposed to have some real fire, toughness, be a mistress of combat. Good Lord, she doesn't even make a decent Florence Nightingale for the team. One gets the feeling that she and her dragon fang couldn't carve a roast. I'll bet Conan's Red Sonia could slice her to ribbons in a fight. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of having her seek out Barbara's past is a good one, as it will provide some insight, but it's not the main problem. Give her a present. Mr. Ween, betcha he didn't know this, 
is notorious for liking and therefore writing nice characters. It's what makes just about anything he writes good to read, even when the going gets dull. But in this one case, I wish he'd change course a little or even reverse it. Give the girl some vices, a wee bit of viciousness, or at least a temper. Not permanently, if this grates, but while she's discovering herself, surely you can make the sacrifice. Have her use the sword as something that cuts rather than a club. Let her hate someone, threaten to cut them. Give the readers and her fellow defenders something to chew on, a few worries about her. She doesn't have to be pure rotten, just a bit spicier, or something. That's fantastic. Dull as dishwater. Did you know you were going to be a writer after you wrote that, while you were writing that? I had no (laughs) idea. For one thing, I would never have dared to intimate that any of Len's stories were ever dull. I'm so embarrassed that as a fan girl, (laughs) I had the nerve. I know. Well, that's because Len was an incredibly nice guy and a really good sport. How old were you at that point? I was 20 when I wrote this. That's awesome. And I I should have been doing my exams or writing a paper or something, but always time to get fired up with a little helpful suggestions (laughs) about a comic book. Well, I want to say that that is 1974, 1975 was basically the year of the woman. You know, we're in the middle of the second feminist movement. Yes, thank heaven. Kind of what a time to be alive, to be able to write in and be like, there should be more female characters. They should be powerful. And I love that Led printed that. That's phenomenal. Well, just yesterday, I was reading Defenders issues because I'm writing a foreword for a Defenders reprint, one bit of which I contributed to, but the rest was by friends of mine. And I'm kind of going, holy moly. It was of this era. And a bunch of uninvited superheroes show up where the Defenders are with, you know, we want this, we want that. And the Valkyrie goes and makes them coffee. (laughs) And she suggests maybe Hellcat should help her. And that was after this. That was, it's like, Len may have listened, but the minute he left the book, we were back to, well, the girls should make the coffee for our uninvited guests who we don't want here in the first place. (laughs) So I was like, oh, just when I think we're losing ground, I realize how far we've actually come, that that was taken for granted then. And now, I beg your pardon. How did you go from writing these letters and being such a passionate fan to eventually realizing you could work at this company? Well, let's see. First, I was going to be a spy. Very young. Then I was going to be a lawyer because my family was full of lawyers, and I knew that that nice lawyers, anyway, fought bad guys. And then I realized I really hate papers and arguing and sit. So I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So I decided to become an actor. Luckily for me, it sunk in that actors don't actually invent the things they say. Somebody else does. I was like, so if I were to become a writer, then I could become the person who is the lawyer, who is the spy, who is the superhero, who fights all the bad guys, and I can be all of them at once and be the bad guy. So that was when I realized what I had been shaping up my whole life to be was a writer. And uh, I applied to Marvel because it was one of the places I knew where they actually paid people to write instead of waiting till you published a huge book and were lucky enough to have it sell a million copies. But Marvel didn't need any writers, especially not, you know, chubby little fangirls who'd been annoying them with fan mail. <laughs> but they needed proofreaders. And I had been extremely sneaky 
I had gone to work as a proofreader in a law office just a few blocks from Marvel's location. And then I kept applying and applying, and it turned out, and this was just, you know, heaven's own luck, my mother knew someone who knew someone who knew Stan. And on the strength of that, like, four degrees of separation, he was so nice. He's like, my friend's 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 daughter loves comics. Can you please just let her in and see if she's any good? And they let me in and said, well, we have lots of writers and editors, but we hear you can proofread. And ching, 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 that was how I got in. I came in as a proofreader. And then because I was kind of organized, I became the artwork returns person, which meant I got to meet every writer and I got to meet every penciler, every inker, or at least speak to them on the phone, write them letters. I also got to handle every piece of artwork Marvel published. That's except, awesome. That's, ex- yeah. Except for the ones Amazing. that were stolen. You know, it's like, oh, okay, hello, Jack. I've got the latest issue of Devil Dinosaur here. Do you want to sign the, the okay form so I can send it to you? It's like me speaking to Jack Kirby. Most people have never seen in person an original Jack Kirby or oh Steve Ditko. That's, Every that's day amazing. across my desk, it was amazing. It was just an amazing job. It looked like a lot of work because, frankly, it was. But I was right there in the action getting to see all that beautiful stuff, meet all those wonderful people. What was it like actually being there? And what did you take in from all of this talent? Like, did you have people that really helped you out? Absolutely. Yeah. They were incredibly generous with their mentoring and their friendship. Like, I learned from, from John Romita, one of the most amazing artists on the planet. He could spot a flaw, but he never, ever was unkind when he spotted it, and he always gave it to you in layers. So he'd find something you did beautifully and then point out, that's really not going to fly, and then finish with another compliment. And I watched him do that time and time again, and he was just amazing. Dave Cockrum, one of the funniest people who ever lived, loved comics, loved talking about comics, loved science fiction, loved talking about science fiction. So I could be working with my hands while he was talking, and at one point he and Patey, his wife and I, shared an office because space was tight. So they'd be drawing so they could talk and I'd be doing pages so I could talk. And they had so much to say, so many interesting stories. Through friends like them, I'd then meet people I might not otherwise have known, only because Archie Goodwin, Stan Lee, John Romita, Marie Severn, these people were all so incredibly nice. They let me in as though I had any business being there. And I kind of figured, hey, the least I can do is keep the door open for the greats and also keep another door open for tomorrow's greats. So how did you transition into becoming like an editor and then a writer? Um, actually, it was writer than editor. Oh, okay. Uh, what happened is things were always running late. People were always overbooked. Nothing changes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they never wanted to pay a late fee at the printer or worse yet, slot in a reprint when they had done solicitations for an original issue. So it became, okay, it's plotted and drawn, but we need it scripted tomorrow. Ding, ding, ding. Hi, I'm right here. I have an evening free. I could could do pages tonight. And they had already let me try like a six-pager here, a five-pager there, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So they knew technically I could write. So it's like, okay, it's somebody else's plot. What harm can she do? And suddenly... I'm writing the dialogue over somebody else's story. So that happened before I became an editor, and I got them to give me a title, which was editorial assistant. 
So one of the guys was going freelance and his job opened up and I just was kind of like, me, me, I'm taking this job. Nobody else is getting this job. Just give it to me, please. What was your official first credit in a Marvel comic? Do you remember what title that was? I know the first thing I did as a writer was a Wolverine Hercules short story that was drawn by Ken Landgraf. We were both trying out and, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. George Perez, that genius, that that god stepped down from Olympus and probably just as a kindness to me and Ken inked it and it looks incredibly gorgeous. And I count that as my first Marvel story. Well, I love the story and just about how you got your gig as a writer for Iron Fist and Power Man. What was that like? What exactly happened? How did you get your crack at it? Well, I suddenly realized they were going outside the company and trying to recruit new writers And I looked around, and every assistant editor but me had a regular monthly title. He was he. And in this case, I can say he. There is no he or she was writing. And, okay, I played a little bit dirty because I'm not a fool. For, like, the first time since my job interview, I wore stockings and high heels and a skirt. And I waited till we'd finished work for the day, and there was always sort of an informal meeting at the end. And I planted myself on a desk and swung my legs up and said, so how come we're going outside the company for writers when I don't have a book yet? (laughs) And Jim Shooter was very fair about stuff like that. He thought about it and said, you're right. You ought to be writing Miss Marvel. And my heart sank because even though I loved reading Miss Marvel, I had no affinity for her whatsoever. I had no clue what I could do with that character. But even funnier, Chris Claremont, who was writing Miss Marvel, sat up and said, Joe most certainly will not. I love her. She's my girl. I'm going to keep writing her. And Jim's like, well, what about the X-Men? Chris is like, are you out of your freaking mind? (laughs) Give her Power Man and Iron Fist, which I never thought would happen, because as a fan, I was crazy about both of those characters. They had basically taken the last two men standing of two different played-out crazes and were like, we've probably got one good bi-monthly title if we splice those two together. But nobody quite seemed to know how to bring them together. But basically, I got Power Man and Iron Fist because they were the book Chris was most willing to give up. He was the writer who was most behind on his deadlines, and neither he nor I wanted to go in with the, oh, the girl should be writing the girl book. In the 1970s, I was morbidly sensitive about girls can only write girls. And my next thing would be, oh, really? And can only radioactive mutants write the X-Men? And can only, (laughs) you know, Jekyll Hyde monsters write the Hulk? It's like, why is this? Chris writes women much better than I do. That's so interesting, though, because we do tend to say, like, we should sort of cast by type, right? And, like... That's happening a lot more. I mean, I think everyone is so much more conscious of it now just because there aren't as many opportunities. And so you want to find opportunities oh, absolutely. for these writers. But I do think it's so interesting that you were given a book as one of the few female writers about two men. And you made it into a successful series that wasn't successful it before. Was, it was circling the bowl. I will tell you, much as I love them both, the numbers were trending downward. And then they began to trend upward. And then... I I outwitted myself because then it went monthly. Then it began getting a lot of attention. Well, what was it about diving in? You get these two characters and you have to make something of it. Like, what was that secret sauce that you made? I love 
those two characters. Mm-hmm. This was long before anybody had coined the term buddy story, mm-hmm. but I recognized that that was what this was, and I had loved them both individually. I mean, Iron Fist is the original stranger in a strange land, and I liked him because he's a man with no anger. And meanwhile, for very good reason, Luke Cage is a man with anger issues, to say the least. He has been so wronged so many times. It is so not fair. And probably Iron Fist is the only person with whom he could have been partners for long without the whole thing coming apart. But, you know, I kind of looked at it and was like, well, I guess we're doing Rio Bravo here with Ricky Nelson as the sidekick instead of Dean Martin. You've got the big, strong, gruff guy who's seen it all and his answer to things is to attack them. And then you've got, you know, the little gosh, wow, yeah, this would be cool. We could do it together, guy. And I was like, that works as a friendship. And when you throw in the two female sidekicks, you know, the the academic and the ex-cop and what have you, I was like, oh, we've got a party here. It's like a team book. What is the first question that you ask yourself or that you try to address when you're putting a story together? Who are the characters? That's always the first question. Everything else is secondary. Power Man and Iron Fist were in New York. They operated out of 42nd Street. This was literally my milieu, and I may not have known much about being, you know, a, a warrior from a lost city in the Himalayas or about being an oppressed person of color in the 1970s United States, but I knew a heck of a lot about feeling like you don't belong and a heck of a lot about being treated like an outsider even when you have more right to be there than anybody else. That's such a great piece of advice for aspiring writers and creators is to focus on the things that kind of bring us together. That's the thing that is going to make you a strong writer and be able to write different kinds of characters. Do what you can understand. Relate to people as people. If little kids want to look up to somebody who maybe isn't of their culture, so much the better. Well, that's kind of the reason why we have, like, Miles Morales as a Spider-Man and, you know, Kamala Khan as Miss Marvel and, like, America Chavez. Those characters are for that reason, is to be able to say, we want young kids of all different backgrounds to have characters that they can look up to who are also of all different kinds of backgrounds, right? You also created a series called Fallen Angels. Yes. What was that experience creating a new series from scratch and what sort of got you excited about it? We were sitting in the X-Men office and there are all these, you know, characters from the New Mutants who were suddenly going homeless. And again, Chris, he always stuffs his books with as many characters as he can. And then they spill out and need series of their own. And uh, I was like, I love the X-Men, but Chris is writing the X-Men and I don't want Chris's job. But boy, if I could just scoop up some of his leftovers. And I was the assistant editor on Devil Dinosaur. Can I put Devil Dinosaur in an X-Men comic? Trust me, I'll find a way to get him into New York. And the minute that we started talking about it, it took on a life of its own. The minute we okayed it, just every bit of nonsense I felt I could get away with came into that book. <laughs> That's awesome. the, you know, when, when we found out that the blue lobster is the mutant lobster, well, okay, that means we've got to have a blue lobster in the book, but we'd also better have a regular old green lobster to show that he's not bigoted and he'll run around with the non-mutant <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite character to write? Honestly, it seems to be whoever I'm writing at the exact second the question is asked. My favorite character is whoever is coming out of the pen or the word processor at that exact second. 
You know, I was having a love affair with Doctor Strange on the train in, for example. I haven't written Doctor Strange in so long, although, boy, now that he's Benedict Cumberbatch, wouldn't I love? It's like, <laughs> what is wrong with my life? I write Wolverine before he's Hugh Jackman and Doctor Strange before he's Benedict Cumberbatch. But that's awesome, though. Yeah. Are, are you kidding? Yeah. I mean, when you gave... I saw the first X-Men movie, I wanted to, I'd, I'd never heard of Hugh Jackman. Yeah. I wanted to send him roses. I was like, you're perfect. God created you to play this character. You are so wonderful. And I feel that way about Benedict Cumberbatch. And I think probably he wasn't born yet when I first became a Doctor Strange fan. (laughs) He might not even have been born the first time I wrote Doctor Strange. I'm afraid to look. Well, I mean, you created the groundwork. I mean, when, when I started working here in 2006, like, we didn't have a film yet. And now the world has completely changed. <laughs> it's like I'm 12 again when I watch those movies. I watch them with my 13-year-old nephew, and he just thinks they're cool, and I sort of cry. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited and so happy. And he and his sister still don't quite know what I have to do with comics or what I have had to do with comics, but I indoctrinated them as children to say, every time Stan would appear, I'd go, you know, that guy is my friend. I worked with him. We're buddies. I've known him since before you were born. So every time they would see him in a movie, Joe, Joe, look, it's your friend. It's your friend. Your friend's in this movie. And the day he passed away, not the day he passed away, the first time I saw them thereafter, they met me at the front door because they were afraid maybe nobody had told me and they wanted to break it to me gently. Oh, that's so sweet. The the greatest kids on the planet. Well, I was just going to say, I was like, you should show them this issue of Invincible (laughs) Iron Man. This we're is, ready. We're, we're ready. Just ready. We're just trying to bring back your childhood to you. Oh my gosh. Uh, where you are basically featured as a fan of Iron Man and you're asking him for an autograph. Do you know what's very funny? <laughs> do you remember this? I this not panel? only do I remember, but George Tusca told me he hadn't drawn me. He just drew some blonde girl. He didn't know it was supposed to be me till Bill turned the script in. And then he came to me and said, I wish I'd known. I could have made her look so much more like you. <laughs> Which I think was the sweet, I was so thrilled to be in there. But then George saying he didn't make her look enough like me because he didn't know. Sweetest thing ever. Well, it's awesome. So it's you in front of Iron Man and you saying, wait till I show this back at the bullpen. <laughs> and so Iron- I was already a pro with that. <laughs> yes, you're already a pro. It says, and Iron Man says, to Joe Duffy, with love, is that okay? And then in his brain was he has a thought balloon in his brain in his thought balloon says never knew it would be so hard to sign autographs with metal gloves on <laughs> so you challenged iron man an invincible iron man no i remember that very please i eventually yeah. had to return that art page to George. <laughs> that's amazing well what are you working on now what can fans find you now doing well, I'm doing some forewords for, for the Marvel Masterworks collections, which I'm enjoying doing because it's a chance to revisit the stuff that people were working on when I first got into the business. But I still write action-adventure fiction, novels and short stories of my own. And every year, it's like, oh, you finished it. Get your stuff together and release it on Amazon. And so far, I haven't quite done that. How are you liking, just based on where you were and where Marvel Comics specifically is now. What are your, what are your thoughts? Like, are, are we doing a pretty okay job? Of course. I think, <laughs> do, I think you're doing an absolutely wonderful job. 
Dick Giordano, as nice as he was talented, and if you've looked at his artwork, you know what that means, you know, said there's a point where you really have to let the kids be the ones who do it. And that's absolutely true. Every generation has their own taste and their own idea of what's good. But as long as these are recognizably the Marvel heroes that Stan and Steve and Johnny and Jack and all of them created, then, yeah, do this version of them. You guys are doing it so right because you wouldn't have the huge, loving, enthusiastic audience you do if you didn't. I'm glad we have your stamp of approval. That is important to us. Absolutely. You know, just talking about that time period in Marvel history, you guys did have a few women that you were working with, Marie Severin and Louise Simonson. We had um, Annie Nascenti here a little while ago, and we love her. Oh, great. What was that feeling like? Like, was there this sense of camaraderie that you guys were the few women? Did you, you know, talk about that? Was that a dialogue internally or, or was just sort of like, okay, we're here, whatever, no big deal. Why is everyone making a big deal? Like, what was that for you personally and within your friendships? For me, it was a huge deal, but I also learned pretty quickly that, It wasn't something you talked about, because if you did, you got joyless and angry, and it was all you ever thought about. Life's too short. Be angry about the stuff that matters right now that you can fix. So I was always incredibly happy to work with Virginia Ramita, Marie Severin, Irene Vartanoff, Linda Grant, who didn't do much writing, but was a very important part of the editorial presence. You know, we had Louise, we had the artists at that time. I think mainly Patty Cockrum, Cynthia Martin, um, Colleen Doran, Wendy Peeney wasn't at Marvel, but she did some work for Epic. And yeah, you always felt a certain amount of, yes, well done, sister suffragettes, when we were together, but you didn't talk about it. It was kind of, the devotion had to go into the work instead of into the We're going to keep an eye on you to make sure you're not oppressing us. It's like, yeah, we're going to get oppressed. You can fight the battle, but you also, you should also be. Sometimes you gain a lot more ground by doing than you do by fighting. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, I could fight for women's rights, fight for women's rights. But if I turn in a really good script that they have to publish, it's that much easier for the next young lady who comes to the door saying, I want to write for you or I want to draw Well, that's the version of the fight, right? The fighting is the actual work sometimes, I think, right? I think it's absolutely. not the pulpit or the, you know, the You are the absolutely pedestal. right about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for fighting <laughs> with your work because it really has paved the way for all of us, for us to be able to do what we do. We sincerely look back at that time and are in awe of the strides that you guys made just in your own right. But realizing you did open the door for people like Judy and myself and everyone here to be able to have that voice. So thanks for doing it and thanks for being the original woman of Marvel. (laughs) Well, you know what? There were women before me. There were women after me. But I think in some ways I came in at just the right time that from me forward there was a continuity. You didn't go, well, she wrote four issues. It was a girl book. It didn't do well. So that's it. You know, it's like I feel that I had the good fortune to be the person who helped lay the groundwork for a continuity that goes on. Although, you know, heaven help us, had there not been a Linda Fight, a Patty Cockrum, a Mary Screenus, a Flo Steinberg, a Ramona Fraden, who wasn't at Marvel, you yeah. know, and heaven help us, oh, where would we be without Marie Severin? It's like, yeah, I was the first woman I know of to write male superheroes and make it an ongoing gig. But so many women laid the groundwork for me long before I ever set foot inside Marvel.
I mean, I think that's the mission statement we try to hammer in here is that women have been writing, have been reading comics since they exist. I'm also going to say, let's give a shout out to every man who didn't say no. Mm -hmm. To every man who said, you're right, you deserve that job. I thank every woman who laid the groundwork, every man who didn't stop them, and every woman who's kept it going since. Thanks again to Joe Duffy for stopping by. I felt like I learned so much from her. I loved her reenactment of her letters column. I love that we <laughs> totally sprung that on her. It was not staged. Totally a surprise. Yeah. That was a great moment. Yeah, we had a couple of her old comics in there that she was just like shocked that we still had. I learned a lot. And if there are any other women of Marvel past or present that you'd like to hear from, you can email us at womenof at marvel.com. You can also tweet us at Marvel using the hashtag women of Marvel. And of course, make sure you're following us on Instagram at the woman of Marvel. I just want to drop that we are coming to C2E2, the woman of Marvel. Yeah. Our panel will be on Sunday, March 5th. First, at 12.15 p.m. in room S401, we've got a great group of panelists, which we'll be excited to announce. And if you're not coming to C2, to make sure you follow us on Instagram because we'll be posting some fun stuff throughout the weekend. Potty potty, maybe cold photos of our audio producer, Becca, looking cold because it's <laughs> Chicago, maybe eating pizza. I don't know. But things going on right now, it's it's the beginning of the year, which means all these new podcasts are dropping. And to stay in with the things that are going on, um, my new favorite thing that I've been listening to is this podcast called The Dream. It's in season two, and it's all about the supplements and vitamin industry, and it is really fascinating, and it is my must-listen to on the subway going to work. And also, you know, if you guys have podcasts that you really like, you should tweet at me at OMG underscore DJ underscore Judy, because I love podcasts. The end. And I love that you guys are listening to me. Sada, what are you doing? Well, let's see. I've got another episode of Marvel's Hero Project dropping this Friday. And if you missed it, we actually spoke to one of the kids on Marvel's Hero Project a few weeks back. It's on our podcast. Her name is Takata. She's a wonderful human being. And you should check out her story. Listen to her on our podcast and then check it out on Disney Plus with the other Marvel Hero Project stories. That's what's cooking in my world. I have a couple of other publishing projects, which I cannot talk about, but lots of exciting things. Well, we actually just announced that Kelly Thompson is going to be writing Black Widow. Ooh, yeah. Which is very exciting. Also, Kelly's Captain Marvel, the end issue number one is out now. So Kelly's, she's keeping busy. Maybe we'll have her back soon. It's pretty awesome. I remember the first time I ever worked with her was when she co-wrote an issue of Captain Marvel, actually back in the day with Kelly Sue DeConnick, who needed some help because her schedule wasn't coming through. And so we pulled in Kelly Thompson, and I was like, oh, I need to work with this woman more. And now she's doing it all. Well, I think that's it for this week. We've got some great episodes upcoming, so please stay tuned. This is Marvel, your universe. This episode of Woman of Marvel was produced by Rebecca Seidel and Zachary Goldberg. It was hosted by me, Judy Stevens. And me, Sana Manith. 
Our development manager is Kieran Heffa, and Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>